Well, good morning. Today, I have the privilege, if that is the word that I want, of introducing our next series, which is going to be on apologetics. So today, we're going to be looking at two main questions. What is apologetics, and why should we care about apologetics? So we'll start with the what. Apologetics, that is the English word, comes from the Greek word apologia, which means defense. Apologetics, or apologetic, is still sometimes used in this way, and when so used, there's nothing inherently Christian about the word. One could put forth an apologetic for anything. However, a second and probably more familiar meaning of apologetics for most of us is something along the lines of a discipline devoted to defending the truth of Christianity. William Lane Craig defines apologetics as the branch of Christian theology which seeks to provide a rational justification for the truth claims of the Christian faith. So in case that sounds scary to you, don't worry, you're not going to be required to memorize it for the test, but it might be a bonus question. So for purposes of this series, though, it will be sufficient if we think of apologetics as the practice of defending the truth of Christianity through the use of reason and arguments. There are numerous types or categories of apologetics, such as presuppositional apologetics or evidentialism, and we aren't going to go into any of those in detail this morning. But one thing I do want to briefly cover is the distinction between offensive and defensive apologetics. Offensive or positive apologetics seeks to present a positive case for Christian truth claims. Defensive or negative apologetics seeks to nullify objections to those claims. In this series, we'll be doing both offensive and defensive apologetics. Over the course of the next few months, we'll look at evidence for the existence of God, such as the Kalam cosmological argument and the moral argument, as well as arguments and evidence in favor of the claim that Jesus did in fact rise from the dead. We'll also consider objections to Christianity, such as the claim that the gospels are not historically reliable or that the existence and amount of pain and suffering in the world cannot be squared with the existence of an all-loving, all-powerful God. However, despite the distinction in theory between offensive and defensive apologetics, in my experience, the distinction is not all that relevant in practice, and that the two rarely remain completely separate. Often in the course of conversations with others about the truth of Christianity, one will have occasion to employ both. For example, when giving a positive case for the resurrection of Jesus, one may need to address objections, such as the claim that the resurrection narratives are not historically reliable. One may even wish to examine competing explanations, such as the wrong tomb hypothesis or the swoon theory, in order to show that the resurrection hypothesis provides the best explanation of the historical data. All right, so that is the what of apologetics. This brings us to our second question for this morning. Why apologetics? Why do we care about apologetics? Should we even care about apologetics? There are some who would argue that we should not, and that any attempt to give a rational basis for the faith is unhelpful, unspiritual, or perhaps even unbiblical. I cannot agree. So let us now attempt to answer our second question. In doing so, we will essentially be constructing an apologetic for apologetics, a sort of meta-apologetic, if you will. After we've built an offensive apologetic for apologetics, we will then turn to defensive apologetics and consider a few common objections. So, why apologetics? 
And we're going to start with the obvious answer, the one you're all expecting, which is that Scripture requires the Christian to be prepared to engage in apologetics. You all know the passage. 1 Peter 3, verses 15 and 16. Peter says, But in your hearts revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience, so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. The Greek word translated answer in the phrase, always be prepared to give an answer, is in fact apologia. Now, I don't think when Peter uses apologia here, he's thinking of a formal discipline dedicated to defending the truth of Christianity. Rather, he is using the word in the sense of defense or reason, as many of our English Bibles translate it. However, as soon as we start giving reasons for the hope that we have, we are engaged in the practice of defending the truth of Christianity, which is how we have defined apologetics. Thus, we cannot avoid becoming apologists if we are to fulfill the instructions we are given in this verse. Note also that Peter has not left open to us the option of winging it. He does not say that when asked we must give, or he does not simply say that when asked we must give reasons for the hope that we have, but that we must be prepared to give reasons. That is, we must put in time and effort beforehand to be ready and equipped to engage in apologetics when the opportunity arises. We should also note that we frequently see Paul engaging in apologetics in Acts. We'll look at a few examples. So starting in Acts chapter 9, verses 20 through 22, this is immediately after Paul's conversion. I should say Saul's conversion. At once he, that is Paul, began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. All those who heard him were astonished and asked, Isn't he the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem among those who call on this name? And hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priests? Yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Messiah. Jumping down to chapter 17, verses 1 through 4. When Paul and his companions had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a Jewish synagogue. As was his custom, Paul went into the synagogue, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Messiah, he said. Some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and quite a few prominent women. Now from chapter 18, verses 1 through 4. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. There, he met a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontius, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had ordered all the Jews to leave Rome. Paul went to see them, and because he was a tent maker, as they were, he stayed with them and worked with them. Every Sabbath, he reasoned in the synagogue, trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. After Paul leaves Corinth, he goes on to Ephesus, where we are told in Acts 18, verse 9, excuse me, Acts 18, verse 19, he again goes to the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. He moves on, but then returns to Ephesus, and Acts 19.8 tells us, Paul entered the synagogue and spoke boldly there for three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. So note the verbs used in these verses. Paul is described as proving, as reasoning, explaining, and arguing persuasively. 
That is to say, Paul is doing apologetics. He is giving reasons and arguments, and we are told even proving his case. And in Acts 17, when Paul is in Athens speaking before the Areopagus, he even appeals to the work of Greek philosophers with whom his listeners would have been familiar to support the case he presents for Christianity. These verses we've, we surveyed do not appear to be outliers or special cases. Rather, for Paul, apologetics appears to be a standard piece of presentation of the gospel. We're going to talk more about the relationship between evangelism and apologetics in just a bit. But before we talk about the importance of apologetics when we are trying to reach unbelievers, we need to talk about the importance of apologetics to the believer. This requires an excursus into philosophy, specifically into epistemology. Epistemology is the branch of philosophy that deals with questions of knowledge, like how do we know things, or what does it mean to know something? This morning, our interest is in the question, how do we know Christianity is true? Presumably, we all do think Christianity is true. If not, this would be a really weird way to spend Sunday mornings. Presumably, we are all also fairly confident in our belief Christianity is true. I don't know about the rest of you, but I try not to make a practice of voluntarily contributing significant portions of my income towards things in which I don't strongly believe. And for those of you thinking, what about taxes? Uh, note that I said voluntarily <laughs> contributing. But why do we think Christianity is true? What are our reasons, our justification for concluding thusly? Well, I can't speak for everyone, but for me at least, the answer is apologetics. Now, this might seem surprising to some of you on first hearing, or alternatively, some of you might be thinking that's exactly what we expected from you, but let me explain a bit further. So I'm sure this is going to come as a shock to all of you, but I am by nature a pretty skeptical guy. I'm not big on accepting things on authority. Wherever possible, I want to reason things out for myself. I'm also not highly emotional. In other words, as Guy has told us, I'm a psychopath. Um, my wife picked up on this very early in our marriage. I can recall her telling me once in the wake of a disagreement, everything just has to make sense to you. And she did not mean that as a compliment. <laughs> so I accepted Christ at an early age and grew up in a Christian home, but I was never going to remain a Christian, or at least remain a confident Christian, just because my parents were. In that case, what if I had grown up in a Jewish home or a Muslim home? or an atheist home? Would I then be justified in holding to those worldviews? Obviously, as a kid, I trusted that my parents had good reasons for being Christians, but as I grew older, I wanted to know and understand those reasons for myself. I also was going to have an awfully hard time sustaining a Christian faith grounded in some sort of ecstatic emotional experience. For example, as evidence for their faith, Mormons frequently appeal to the burning in the bosom, which is some sort of powerful emotional feeling or state that is supposedly given by the Lord to confirm the truth of Mormonism. But if Christianity is true, that means that Mormonism is not true. And if Mormonism is not true, that means that all of the Mormons that have believed on the basis of the supposed burning in the bosom have apparently been terribly misled by their emotional states. This calls into question the reliability of our emotions as indicators of the truth. For me to remain a Christian, or at least remain a confident Christian, I was going to need reasons to believe that were not grounded in the happenstance of my upbringing or the vagaries of my emotional states. And I found, or perhaps I should say was given, those reasons, primarily from people who are sitting in this room right now. 
I can recall being 12 years old in Brink listening to Denny Lobb teach John Warwick Montgomery and William Lane Craig's arguments for the resurrection. In our Sunday morning services and on Wednesday nights at youth group, such subjects as the cosmological argument, teleological argument, and moral argument were taught. As a member of our youth group, I got to eat lunch with scholars like William Lane Craig, Michael Lacona, Ben Witherington III, and Michael Bauman when we brought them in for the Reason for Hope conferences. I very distinctly remember a conversation Seth Dreyer and I had at lunch with Dr. Craig about Christopher Hitchens' apparent misunderstanding of the moral argument that became apparent when Craig and Hitchens debated. As a 16-year-old, I checked reasonable faith out of the church library and read it cover to cover. And incidentally, when I did that, I recall that according to the card in the book, the last person to check it out before me was my older sister, Stephanie. Apologetics furnished me with the rational justification I needed to be confident in my faith, which was, and still is, very freeing. I know that I made some people nervous when I decided to study philosophy at a secular university. I actually got to eat lunch with Dr. Michael Bauman at Summit the summer before I started college. And when I told him I was going to go to Indiana, Purdue, Fort Wayne and study philosophy, he actually tried to dissuade me, suggesting Taylor University and Iwu and Huntington University as Christian colleges that he knew of that were in my area that he thought might be better fits. But despite Dr. Bauman's misgivings, I really wasn't worried. As I saw it, if Christianity is true, then philosophy ought to confirm it. On the other hand, if Christianity is false, well, that's something I have a vested interest in knowing. And as I expected, studying philosophy only served to strengthen my faith as I saw how Christianity makes sense of the basic problems of philosophy. I was so impressed by this, I gave a sermon about it after my freshman year of college. Nothing I've encountered since college has altered the situation materially. I am still confident that Christianity is true, and this on the basis of apologetics. Having a rational, apologetic grounding for Christianity gives me confidence in my faith that I would not have otherwise, even in the wake of tragic or terrible experiences. I talked about this a little bit in the second of my two sermons on death earlier this year. Even in the wake of Sophia's death last year, I can honestly say that at no point did I question or doubt my faith. If my faith were grounded in feeling a certain way about Christianity, then I can imagine that the grief and sadness of Sophia's death might have caused me to doubt my faith. However, my faith is not grounded in feeling a certain way about Christianity, and the emotional pain of Sophia's death does not serve as a rebutter or a defeater for any of the reasons or arguments or evidence that convinced me of the truth of Christianity in the first place. If Christianity is true, it is true irrespective of my feelings about it at any given time. In essence, what I have just described and am advocating for is an evidentialist approach to faith. However, one need not be an evidentialist to recognize the value of apologetics in strengthening the believer. Dr. Craig, who is not an evidentialist, argues similarly. In On Guard, he writes, emotions will carry you only so far, and then you're going to need something more substantial. In his view, this something more substantial is apologetics. But even if you're not like me, even if you find it impossible to doubt your faith, irrespective of any evidence for or against it, it is still vitally important that you be equipped to give a rational defense of Christianity. If we are going to reach others with the gospel, we must be prepared to give them reasons to believe it is true. 
Now, some people we encounter may not need to hear a rational justification for the faith prior to committing their lives to Christ, and that's fine. If someone responds to a simple gospel presentation, we don't say, hold on, I haven't yet explained to you the nuances of the ontological argument. And of course, to do that, we would also need to know the nuances of the ontological argument ourselves. Um, however, we also don't just assume that because that person has prayed the sinner's prayer, our work is finished. As we just noted, apologetics plays an important role in the life of the believer, and so we would want to make sure that our new brother or sister understands his or her faith, is convinced that it is true, and is prepared to defend it. On the other hand, many people will want to hear a rational defense of the truth of Christianity prior to making a decision to follow Christ, and this makes sense. After all, wouldn't we ask for the same thing in a similar circumstance? If you were talking to a Muslim or a Mormon or even an atheist who wanted to convert you to his worldview, wouldn't you ask for evidence to support his worldview, reasons to believe that it's true? But if we would ask for reasons and evidence before converting to Islam or Mormonism or becoming atheists, why should we expect differently when we are advocating for Christianity? If the gospel isn't true, then at best it is nothing more than a nice fairy story like Lord of the Rings or the Chronicles of Narnia. If we think Christianity is more than that, we should be prepared to explain why we think that. Not only is apologetics integral to evangelism, I think that being able to give a rational defense of Christianity is often a prerequisite to the gospel even getting a fair hearing. J. Gresham Machen wrote the following, false ideas are the greatest obstacles to the reception of the gospel. We may preach with all the fervor of a reformer and yet succeed in winning only a straggler here and there, if we permit the whole collective thought of the nation or of the world to be controlled by ideas which, by the resistless force of logic, prevent Christianity from being regarded as anything more than a harmless delusion. Under such circumstances, what God desires us to do is to destroy the obstacle at its root. What is today a matter of academic speculation begins tomorrow to move armies and pull down empires. In that second stage, it has gone too far to be combated. The time to stop it was when it was still a matter of impassioned debate. So as Christians, we should try to mold the thought of the world in such a way as to make the acceptance of Christianity something more than a logical absurdity. Majin wrote those words in 1913. Much has changed since that time and not necessarily for the better. Rather than just a harmless delusion, many people today see Christianity as actively bad, as an enemy of progress and human equality. Oftentimes, these people have only a caricatured view of Christians as backward, unintelligent, anti-science, anti-intellectual, insecure, and bigoted. Where such an understanding of Christianity prevails, we will have, we will have a significant amount of work to do dispelling people of false notions before the gospel can even begin to receive a fair hearing. And this generally entails being able to challenge stereotypes by demonstrating ourselves to be thoughtful people with rational defenses and justifications for what we believe. During my time working at Created Equal, I spent a lot of time on college campuses talking to people about abortion and Christianity. I learned very quickly that when most people saw us show up, they assumed that we would have absolutely zero rational justification for our positions. However, I also learned that if I could find ways to challenge these people's stereotypes, 
and demonstrate that I had reasons and arguments to support my beliefs, they became a lot more willing to engage in meaningful discussion. And I don't think that phenomenon is limited to college campuses. Let's briefly summarize what we've discussed so far. We defined apologetics as the practice of defending the truth of Christianity through the use of reason and arguments. We saw that scripture requires us to be prepared to engage in apologetics and that we frequently see Paul engaging in apologetics. It appears, in fact, to be a typical element of his sharing of the gospel. We talked about how apologetics provides us, provides us with reasons to believe that Christianity is true that are independent of our feelings and upbringing. This is important not just for evangelism, but also for us as believers. We also talked about how being able to give a rational defense of Christianity may be necessary to bring non-believers to a place where they are even willing to consider Christianity as a viable worldview. At this point, I want to consider a few objections that are sometimes raised to the position I have just laid out regarding the role and use of apologetics. Some of these may strike you as far-fetched, but lest you think I'm making these up, I can assure you that I have personally heard all of these objections. All right, objection number one, apologetics is unbiblical. So we don't need to spend a whole lot of time on this claim because we have already looked at some of the biblical material and we saw that it, it does not support the claim that apologetics is unbiblical. Far from apologetics being unbiblical, 1 Peter 3.16 requires us to be prepared to engage in apologetics. So the claim that apologetics is unbiblical is simply false. Objection number two, we should not be concerned with giving people reasons to believe. We should just preach the gospel and call on people to repent. Like the last objection we looked at, this one cannot be squared with the biblical evidence. As we've noted so many times this morning, and will continue to note, as Christians, we are required by scripture to be prepared to engage in apologetics. There's no way around that. As Christians, we cannot and should not ignore our responsibility to be prepared to give reasons for the hope that we have. So already we see that this objection fails on biblical grounds. However, I think that there are a couple other problems with this objection. First, underlying this objection, there seems to be an assumption that engaging in apologetics and calling on people to repent are mutually exclusive. That is not the case. As we saw from the material in Acts, Paul frequently engaged in apologetics as part of presenting the gospel. We don't have to restrict ourselves to either engaging in apologetics or preaching the gospel and calling on people to repent. We can and should do both. Another problem with this objection is that it would posit a one-size-fits-all approach to evangelism. That is, it suggests that we shouldn't concern ourselves with the viewpoints of the people we're talking to or their misgivings about Christianity. We just present the gospel and tell them to repent. Now, there are cases where calling on people to repent may be warranted. Plenty of people reject Christianity on no other grounds than that they want to retain lordship of their lives. In those cases, what the person may need is simply a call to repent. However, there are also folks for whom the primary barrier to the faith is intellectual, and simply calling on such a person to repent is unlikely to persuade him or her that Christianity is true. Many non-Christians have both intellectual objections to Christianity and an unwillingness to submit to the lordship of Christ, and for those people, both apologetics and a call to repent may be needed. Each person is different, and a one-size-fits-all approach to evangelism is probably going to be less effective than an approach that takes into account the particular concerns of the person with whom we are interacting. All right, objection three. 
No one comes to Christianity through arguments. Anyone ever heard this one? Maybe, maybe a few of you. So this one is a little trickier because in my experience, people who say this sometimes mean different things by it. Some people who say this really just mean that no one comes to Christianity solely through arguments. And I think we would all agree with that. No one becomes a Christian on their own through pure reason and argumentation without the work of the Holy Spirit. On the other hand, some people who raise this objection think that arguments never play any role in a person's coming to Christianity. The problem with this claim is that it seems quite clearly to be false. There are plenty of people who say that arguments and evidence, that is apologetics, were important components or even the primary factor in their decision to follow Christ. We'll hear from at least one such person later in this series. There are also plenty of people like me who would say that arguments and evidence have been integral to their decisions to continue to follow Christ. Unless all of us are lying, and there are literally dozens of us, we cannot dismiss apologetics as extraneous. All right, objection number four. Apologetics is detrimental or possibly even antithetical to faith. When we give people rational reasons to believe, we diminish their faith. Now, I will grant that if the ideal of faith is blind belief devoid of supporting evidence, then apologetics would be damaging to faith. If the ideal is blind belief and we give someone evidence, then of course their belief is no longer blind. However, the critical question is whether the Bible presents blind belief as the ideal type of faith. I think it is clear that the answer is no. We've seen evidence for this already. If blind belief were the biblical goal or ideal, why would Peter command us always to be prepared to give reasons for the hope that we have? Likewise, why do we see Paul reasoning and arguing and proving? We could give plenty of additional examples from Scripture. If blind belief is the ideal, why did Jesus frequently point forward to his upcoming resurrection as the soon-to-take-place confirmation that he was who he said he was? Or why did he perform miracles to corroborate, corroborate his claims to messiahship? Similarly, when John the Baptist was in prison and sent his followers to Jesus to ask whether Jesus was the Messiah or if they should expect someone else, how did Jesus respond? Did he just call on John to have faith? No, he cited the miracles he had performed, of which John was aware, as evidence that he was who he claimed to be. Now, you will sometimes hear folks appeal to doubting Thomas as evidence that the ideal faith is belief without evidence. You all know the story. Thomas is one of the 12. He's not present when Jesus appears to the other disciples after his resurrection. And despite the accounts of the other disciples, Thomas declares that he will not believe unless Jesus appears to him and he can put his fingers in the nail holes and his hand in Jesus' side. A week later, Jesus appears to Thomas. And after Thomas's confession of faith, Jesus tells him, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Is Jesus, in this statement, affirming that the best sort of faith is faith without, without evidence? I don't think so. We have to keep in mind the situation here. Thomas is one of the twelve. He followed Jesus for years, listened to his teaching, watched him perform miracles, heard Jesus predict his own death and resurrection, and then he heard the testimony of his fellow disciples that Jesus had been raised from the dead. Thomas had access to ample evidence, far more evidence than almost anyone else throughout all of human history. And despite all of it, he still refuses to believe until he sees the resurrected Christ for himself. In comparing Thomas to his disadvantage with those who have not seen, I don't think Jesus is saying that the ideal is to believe without any, without any evidence. 
Rather, I think that Jesus is saying, blessed are those who do not obstinately hold out for a personal appearance of the resurrected Christ prior to believing. And that is not in any way incompatible with giving people reasons or evidence for belief. So that wraps up our discussion of common objections to apologetics. As we conclude this morning, I want to give you a brief look at what we'll be discussing in the coming weeks. Next week, we will consider the topic of whether it matters if God exists. After that, we'll look at a number of arguments for God's existence, including the cosmological argument, the teleological argument, and the moral argument. We'll also consider whether the presence of suffering in the world serves as evidence that God does not exist. After that, we will discuss who Jesus was and look at evidence for the resurrection. We'll also consider objections relating to the historical reliability of the New Testament. If all goes according to plan, we should wrap up the series by the end of November. And there will be some breaks in there as well. The way we have organized the topics we'll be addressing closely follows the structure of Dr. Craig's On Guard. Aha, there we go. Which itself fairly closely follows the structure of his book, Reasonable Faith. If you don't have a copy already, I would very strongly suggest that you pick up one of these books and read each week the chapter or chapters that correspond to the material covered in the sermon. Reading along will both reinforce what we cover in the sermons and provide additional detail beyond what we're able to cover on Sunday mornings. Which book, which book would be most beneficial for you is likely going to depend on your familiarity with apologetics. If this is your first exposure to much of this material, I'd suggest that you might go with On Guard. However, if you're already well acquainted with these arguments and topics and want to get into them a little further, you might consider going with Reasonable Faith. However, if you do go with reasonable faith, you should know that the chapters in reasonable faith do not map quite as neatly to the way we have laid out the series. Reasonable faith covers some topics we will not be addressing in this series, such as the ontological argument and the problem of historical knowledge. It also does not have a chapter dedicated to the problem of suffering and evil like On Guard does. All right, so I'm excited for this series. Maybe you can tell, maybe not, because I'm a psychopath, but uh, I think this is important material that should increase our confidence that Christianity is true and help us to feel more prepared to engage others who do not share our views. However, whether you think this material is exciting or not, I would remind you for about the 50th time this morning that we are commanded in Scripture always to be ready to give reasons for the hope that we have. Let us all take that command seriously. All right, thanks, Josh. How many are looking forward to this series? All right, good. This is basically, well, this is going to be basic apologetics, and here is the book that we're following. It's On Guard, and if you're not that familiar with apologetics, just to repeat what Josh was saying, we would encourage you to pick up one of these copies and read it. It's written on a popular level. Uh, I think we've even used this in youth group and that sort of thing, and it's easy to read. It's... it's um, pretty engaging and no, it would not be over anybody's head. And this is reasonable faith, which gets into a little bit more detail, a little more comprehensive treatment of the same material, uh, more or less. And so we would encourage that for those who want to go a little bit deeper. And you can, these are just uh, covering the general subjects, but you can take a specific subject like the uh, reliability of the Gospels, and there are just volumes of books. Well, maybe not volumes. There's lots of books about um, that in particular. So this should prove to be a good series. And, and um, you know, I, for many of us, we didn't come into the faith because somebody 
argued that this was true. A lot of people, that wasn't my experience, but I would say that it's because of apologetics that's helped me to maintain and stay in the faith because, uh, you know, there are times along the way where you just start to kind of wonder, is all this true? Is this really worth all this? And then you find that you're anchored into these facts. So, all right, let's stand and I will dismiss you. With this benediction, may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Go in Christ's name, enjoy each other, and serve each other in love.